Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Midlands Church. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 1. As Kevin said, we're starting a new series today in the Psalms, and we'll get to that in a moment. I want to say a few words just by way of introduction to the series as a whole and to the, to the book of Psalms. Uh, probably the, the most obvious but most significant thing we could say about the Psalms is that they are songs, right? And so as we're reading them, we have to read them as poetic uh, pieces of literature. Uh, they're, they're given to us by God. They're given to us in truth. And so we can trust the words we read, but we have to read them in that sense. And we also have to think about them like we would think about songs and, and the way we think about how songs can so capture our emotions and in many ways shape in many ways, shape how we feel about the things we experience. It was Andrew Fletcher, the uh, Scottish political activist, who said, let me write the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. Right? His, his point in that was that you know, laws provide some guardrails to how a nation functions, but if you really want to get to a person's heart or a nation's heart, you write the lyrics to the music they sing. And what we sing is what we will become. And so the Psalms were, were the ancient songbook of the Hebrew people. They're the, meant to be the songbook of the church today. And I think they're meant to shape our emotions by drawing our hearts to God. And we see that throughout the Psalms, uh, where we get our title for the series is Psalm 57. I'm going to read just a couple verses out of that. Begin verse 7. It says, My heart is steadfast, O God. And then verse 8, many of the translations say, Awake, my soul, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. So there's this call within the song itself to awaken our souls to sing of the steadfast love of God. And the commitment of the psalmist is, my love will be steadfast, not because it's easy, not because I always feel loving, but because your love is steadfast. And singing of your love helps compel me to love others. And so in that way, the, the Psalms rest on a foundational conviction that is in many ways kind of radical in our day. And, it, and it's basically this. Your emotions should not finally be shaped by your circumstances. Now that may sound obvious to you, uh, if you think about it in the context of our culture and how we function as a society today, especially in the West, that's actually a pretty radical notion. Your emotions should not finally and ultimately be shaped by your circumstances. So your emotions are not shaped by what's happening around you, finally and ultimately. They're not shaped by what's happening in you, finally and ultimately. But they ought to be shaped by your relationship with God. That's the foundational conviction of the Psalms. To put it another way, how you feel does not dictate who you are. Now that is in many ways the opposite of the basic message of our culture today. And yet the Psalms teach us how you feel does not dictate who you are. Who you are is first. Your identity comes from God. And then your feelings, your emotions ought to be shaped by, that, by those truths. And these songs are going to help unite our emotions around this God. Now, that does not mean that our emotions are inherently bad, and it does not mean that they cannot be diverse. 
right? So the solution of the Psalms is not that there's only one holy emotion and we all have to pretend to be joyful at all times, right? The, the goal of the Psalms is not to transform us into that little one-dimensional character in Inside Out where we're all joy all the time. And it's going to be a great day. It's going to be a great week. It's going to be a great month, a great life, right? That, that's not a Christian a- approach to emotions and that's not where the Psalms lead us. In fact, as, as Donald Whitney says, there's a psalm for every sigh of the soul. So one of the things you, you find as you read deep into the psalms is you find your own experiences. You find your absolute best days. You're crying out in praise to God. There's a psalm that I cannot read uh, without tearing up. Like it's the psalm I read the day that Anna was born. And it just, it just expresses the joy of my heart that day after we had waited through a miscarriage and years of infertility, and finally we're blessed with our sweet girl. And I cannot read, I can't even think about it <laughs> without tearing up. Then there are psalms that you tear up for opposite reasons. It's not a cry of joy so much as it's a cry of sorrow. There are psalms I think about that I've read at funerals. Psalms I've meditated on in the midst of sinful struggles. Psalm 51 gives us the language of repentance. That's not a bounce-off-the-wall, joyful psalm. At least not at the beginning. Maybe it ends there, but at the beginning, it's, woe is me. I'm unclean, and I deserve not grace. So the psalms do not flatten our emotions, but they do and should shape them. And that's kind of the foundational conviction of this whole series. We don't want to flatten out our emotions. We don't want to pretend as if our emotions aren't real or aren't there. But we want our emotions to be shaped by faith. And I think songs are uniquely geared to shape emotions, and the psalms are given to us by God to uniquely shape our emotions by faith. They awaken our souls to God, and they compel us to sing of His greatness. So that's what we're going to do all summer is look at a psalm each week that will help shape our hearts, help awaken our souls to the glory of God that we might sing of His greatness. And so we're going to start today in Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is kind of a preface or an intro to the whole book. Uh, It gives us a a number of the key themes of the book of Psalms. Its main emphasis is how God blesses His people, and so it gives us these characteristics of the righteous person. And so I'm going to read Psalm 1 uh, to you. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Let me get in verse 1. I'll just read the whole thing and then we'll walk through it and look at some characteristics of the righteous person. So it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish." So we want to look at three characteristics of the righteous this morning. We're just going to walk through this psalm and and look at three characteristics of the righteous. The first is that the righteous avoids the way of the wicked. The righteous avoids the way of the wicked. And we see it there in verse 1. The person walking in God's favor, the person who has the blessing of God, 
ought to be able to figure out right from wrong. They ought to reject the path of evil and be able to turn from the ways of the wicked. But that, as we know, is far easier said than done. Right? Naturally, the righteous person would not go down the paths of the wicked, but it's so easy to find ourselves down those roads. And I think the psalm itself hints at the difficulty. Because if, if you notice the uh, phrases there in that first verse, you've got these kind of parallel ideas. We talked about this a little bit when we were in Proverbs, that the Hebrews did not make their poems rhyme but they, they gave kind of thought rhymes or concept rhymes, and they would express that through parallel statements. And so sometimes in the Psalms, you'll read two phrases sort of stacked on top of each other, and you'll think, those basically mean exactly the same thing. And that's kind of the point of what they were doing. They were emphasizing a point by saying it multiple times. And then sometimes in those stacked up parallel phrases, there's sort of a progression that you can detect. And here, I think you see a little bit of both. So you've got the wicked sinners and scoffers, I think those are more or less synonyms, meaning essentially the same thing. These are the unrighteous people, the, those who are not blessed in the language of this psalm. But when you look at the verbs, you've got this kind of progression. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So there's walking, there's standing, there's sitting. If, if this is the good path, this is the blessed way, and this is the way of the righteous, those three verbs represent a further distance from the correct way, the right path or the blessed way. See, it's, it's one thing to walk among the wicked. It's another thing to stand with them. It's another thing to sit in their seats. Right? There's, there's a progression, and each one denotes a further step down the wrong path. And the point is that the righteous person, the blessed man, will never go down the path or find himself at the end of it. He simply does not belong. Something in him does not fit that picture or that crowd. And I brought along a picture today to try to illustrate this. So, uh, Ariane, if you've got that, I throw this picture up here. This is kind of random. You're either going to recognize this or you're going to think, where in the world is this going? Um, does anybody know who this is? I, I knew Randy would know. Uh, does anyone besides Randy know? Patty Hurst. Okay. So this is, this is Patty Hurst. Uh, she is, she's significant in American history for a couple of reasons, not least of which because she looks a whole lot like our very own Christy Burnett, right? Um, <laughs> that's not the point of this illustration. I've lost the Burnett's. I apologize in advance. They were in here just a second ago. Uh, oh, they're, they're good. They're watching the kids. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, this is derailing fast. Um, this is not Christy. I promise this is not Christy. Um, this is Patty Hearst. Okay. So Patty Hearst, um, I just recently learned about this story and I'm kind of fascinated by it. Uh, she was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, who was one of the wealthiest men in America in the middle of the 20th century. So think Rockefellers, Hearst, Vanderbilts, like the families in American history that had the most wealth. She was right in the middle of them, the granddaughter of the wealth, one of the wealthiest guys in America, uh, and an heiress to an incredible amount of, of riches. And then she was kidnapped. And she was kidnapped by this group of, of radical, militant, they called themselves urban guerrilla fighters, who, who kind of envisioned themselves to be in this class war with the upper class. 
And so how are they gonna take down the upper class? Uh, they, they kidnap one of their own. They kidnap this 19-year-old girl who's the granddaughter and heiress of this really wealthy man. And then, a few months later, this picture emerges of Patty Hearst, and she doesn't look like a kidnap victim. She looks like a soldier. She has a gun. She's standing sort of approvingly in front of the, the image that marks this organization, right? And so there was this amazing story that the, the press could barely keep up with and, and just sort of shock the world that this, this young girl was kidnapped, taken out of her upper-class home in Hillsborough, California, and, and taken in by these radical militant terrorists who were thinking of themselves as being at, at war with the upper class, and then she became one of them. She, she joined them. They robbed banks together. She helped them commit crimes together. She was on the run from the, the feds for like a year with them, hiding and plenty of opportunities to get away and all, all that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a fascinating story, but here's, here's my point. There, there were two points. Let me see if I can remember what they were. Um, the first was that she looked like Christy. I realized that when I looked it up. Uh, there were three points in it, so there were two after that one. Um, here's here's the, the thing I was, I was thinking about this and, and showing this image. On the one hand, imagine the shock of the American public. I mean, we've had stories like this in our own day that you could think of parallels. And there's, there's this 19-year-old girl in San Francisco kidnapped by these terrorists. And churches are praying for her. She's in everybody's thoughts and prayers. People are worried about her. Moms and dads are looking at their daughters and thinking, you know, this could be her. You know, everybody's concerned about her. And then all of a sudden, a picture emerges of her as one of them, right? So the, the shock and horror at that image in America in 1973, that's the kind of shock and horror the psalmist is trying to paint here for the man who claims to be blessed and yet sits in the seat of scoffers. That's how crazy that would be for someone who claims to be blessed, who claims to be righteous, who claims to be in a right relationship with God to, to join the scoffers defending the wicked. That's, that's how crazy this is. The, the other thing about this story that kind of captivated me was the progression from kidnap victim to guerrilla soldier. I mean, this wasn't ca captured on February 23rd. February 24th, she's convinced, and she's on their team. Yeah, th this was a process, and, and it's kind of fascinating to learn about the process. And it's helpful, I think, for us to realize that we go through a similar kind of process in our own walk with the Lord or walk away from the Lord. All right, you can take Patty Hearst down um, <laughs> before uh, she intimidates us too much. Um, but the, the process that, that uh, she went through is, I think, similar to, to what we go through. There's this sense in the beginning where we just start to consider something else. We start to consider something that, that we know to be wrong, that, that we've been taught clearly is contrary to the Word of God. And we're not, we're not doing it. We're not, we're not running headfirst into it. We're just starting to think about it more. We're just starting to consider it. What would that be like? What am I missing out on? Right? And then we move into a second stage where maybe we're not ourselves engaged in it, but we start to approve of those who are. Right? And so we're still kind of keeping our own distance, but we're beginning to stomach it to the level that 
we look at someone else and go, you know what, maybe that's okay for them. I wouldn't do it, surely not. But maybe it's okay for them, and, and it, God probably understands. It's probably not that big of a deal. And then slowly, that begins to develop and morph into us actually taking action, actually participating in whatever this sinful activity might be, actually engaging in it ourselves. But even that's not the end. The end, and the reason I threw up a picture of a radical militant soldier to make us think of this, the end of this is we begin to defend that wrong action. I remember watching a college student go through this process so vividly uh, when I was a college minister about 10 years ago, this young guy, and it was, it was that process. He, he started hanging around a crowd of people that I just thought, man, this is probably, these guys are probably not good for you. I don't, I don't, think, I don't think you're wise enough and mature enough to handle the sort of temptations they're going to draw you toward. And then a few months later, we're kind of talking, and he's going, you know, man, I just think we're a little harsh on these things. I don't think it's so bad. Like, I'm not getting involved in this, but I, you know, I see it. They're doing this, whatever. What they were doing is not the point so much as the process. Uh, and then finally I learned, you know, and, and as a pastor, you always learn, you learn this by canceled appointments, right? Like, you know, no, they don't call to tell you, like, hey, I just did this stuff. You've warned me for months not to get into. You just... They just start canceling with you, you know. And so I start learning through other people that he's, he's participating in this now. He's gotten himself caught up in it. And by the next time we sat down face-to-face, it was no longer, hey, I'm thinking about this. It was no longer, hey, this may not be so bad. It was, how could you tell me not to do this? He was militant. He was defending it. He was firmly seated in the seat of scoffers. No longer just engaging in the activity for his own benefit, but actually defending his right to and scoffing at me and looking down on me for trying to point him back to the word of God and say, this ought not to be so. The righteous do not start down this path. And when they do, they U-turn quickly and and they return to the ways of the Lord. Now, just brief interlude on this point, just to not be understood. This does not mean we avoid wicked people. That's not the point of this. That's not what Psalm 1 is saying. We avoid the ways of the wicked, right? The Psalms are actually very missional. They give us a vision for the nations. Like Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us so that your way, God, may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Right, so we want, as God's people, we want the nations to sing for joy. But the point is, the means to that end is not by walking in their ways. It's by showing them the way to God. Right, so it's, it's not that we're avoiding the wicked as people. We're avoiding walking in their ways in a point that's spiritually dangerous to us and that muddies the waters. Because the scriptures teach us that we love the nation's best, not when we join them, but when we show them a better way. Say, this is the way of the Lord, and life works better this way. So the righteous avoid the ways of the wicked. And then we see the righteous love the law of the Lord. This is in verse 2 and 3 there. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. In all that he does, uh, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So the righteous love the law of the Lord. And that is a curious phrase there in the middle of Psalm 1 because it raises a, a hard question for us. 
how do we delight in rules? And how do we delight in, in statements that tell us things not to do? It may be especially hard if you're a teenager or a young adult still living under the very vocal rules of your parents. You've got a lot of structure and shape to your life because others are giving that to you. You're always going to have some semblance of that. All of us in the room can affirm that for you at any age, in any life stage. But there are certain life stages where it's just more present and you're more aware of it on a daily basis. How are you supposed to delight in rules? When we think of rules, we typically think restrictive. We think constraining the thou shalt nots of the Bible. All the stuff that keeps us from having fun, right? I mean, that's, that's what the rules of the Bible feel like they do sometimes. And it doesn't sound very delightful at all. So sometimes we read verses like this and we think, okay, well, this just means we delight in the law. That means we obey the law. We should do what God says. But we've been studying Luke for a whole semester. And we've spent weeks talking about these people, the Pharisees, who obeyed the Lord in many, many ways, yet they did not delight in the law. All right, so we've seen what happens when you obey the law or claim to obey the law, but don't love the law and specifically don't love the law giver. So in the Psalms, we're called not just to obey the, the law, not just sub, to submit to these rules, but to actually love the law. And, and I don't think there's a simplistic answer to how we get there, but a Psalm that helps me is Psalm 119. It's the longest Psalm. Uh, it um, take you five or six minutes to read it full, probably take you half an hour to really read it slowly and meditate on it. But it's basically just a long, well-thought-out meditation on the value of the Word of God and what, it is, what a blessing it is to know what God has said. And nestled in the middle of Psalm 119 is just, this is just sort of an example of the kind of wisdom you get there in verse 93. He says, I will not forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. So why do, we, why do we love the Word of God? How do, we, how do we love the Word of God? We recognize that the Word of God is our path to life. It's where we find true life. And so we treasure it above all else, and we recognize how empty all the alternatives are. But to get to that point, it takes some concentrated time and effort, right? You don't, you don't just delight in the law of the Lord by kind of hearing it once a week on a Sunday morning and then listening to a thousand other messages from other sources throughout the week. That might make you familiar with the law of the Lord. It might even help you submit to it in some ways. It's not going to lead to love. It's not going to lead to delighting in these things. That takes concentrated effort, and that's what we see in the second half of verse 2. On his law, he meditates day and night. Again, it's a poetic image of just a consistent taking in of the scriptures so that you become like a tree planted by streams of water. So just as streams of water give life to a tree and produce fruit, healthy foliage, so also the law gives life to the righteous, producing spiritual fruit and giving us endurance in this world. So it raises a question for us all. When we read things like this, and we see them in the Psalms and other parts of Scripture, we should ask ourselves the question, do I delight in the Word? Do I pursue it? Do I seek it out like it is a source of life? Or do I just read it because some, somebody's told me to read it, and I kind of feel bad if I don't? Or do I turn to it like it is my one true source for life 
It's, it's the path to blessing. It's the way in which I know the life that God blesses. Do I recognize my true need for the scriptures? And so in reflecting on that point this week and talking with some of the other elders, we, we wanted to, to think about just some ways to encourage us as a body to accomplish a couple things this summer. Uh, summer's kind of a weird time. Uh, schedules are chaotic. You're in and out of town. Lots of things infringe on uh, just your, your basic normal rhythm during summer. Uh, and so we wanted that to kind of give you guys a target to aim at for the summer that, that will help cultivate some of the things that would strengthen our, our church and strengthen you as individuals, strengthen families over the long haul. And so what we want to challenge you guys to do is basically spend the summer in the Psalms, but spend the summer not just reading the Psalms, but also praying the Psalms for each other. So using the Psalms is kind of a means to pray for other people in this church. The reality is, as we gather throughout the summer, we are going to gather weekly, and you're welcome to join us every single Sunday. Uh, but the reality is, as we gather, most of us are not going to be here every single Sunday. You know, and, and so you're going to get disconnected from the community of people here uh, that make up Midlands Church. And if, if we aren't intentional in the opposite direction, you could easily get to the fall when you sort of are ready to reboot and get back on schedule, so to speak, and realize, you know, it's been weeks since you've seen people that you really care about. And perhaps you've wandered down the path of the wicked and haven't even realized it because you haven't had people in your life to call you out and call you back and encourage you and, and things like that. So we want to stay connected over the summer and we want to use the Psalms as a guide for that. So we, uh, we put a little uh, card in your bulletin. I'm going to invite all you guys to take this home today, stick it in your Bible, put it on your fridge, maybe put it up in your car somewhere where you're going to see it on a daily basis. This is just a really simple, uh, it's, it's just a reminder uh, to pray for each other this summer. And then on the back, there are just some really simple instructions for how to access a list of people who go here. <laughs> you know, the, the, the members and attenders of Midlands Church, uh, you can access online. Um, you can access contact information. So if you come across somebody and you wonder, well, I'm not sure how I can pray for them, call them up, send them a text, send them an email. Hey, today I'm going to pray for you and your family. Could you just tell me some ways I could pray for you? I promise you they will not mind hearing from you and hearing that you would like to, to pray for them. Uh, so here's, here's my kind of goal in all of this. What I would consider to be a real success for our summer is that if as a church we committed to each of us read all the way through the Psalms over the course of the summer. So you read a couple a day, you'd, you'd get there, you read five a day, you could read through the whole book in a month and do it a couple times, you know, different methods like that. But read all the way through the Psalms this summer and pray for every fellow member of this church this summer. We have 80 members in, in the church, probably another two dozen or so consistent attenders we would consider sort of part of our community uh, as they're journeying through uh, life with us right now. So 100 or so people, uh, you'd think through how you want to divide that. We, we talked about different ways to do this. We decided to, to give this more like an assignment than like <laughs> tell you guys exactly how to do it. Uh, but the challenge is we just want to spend the summer praying for each other. Don't, don't let yourself get disconnected from this body this summer. And use this emphasis on the Psalms. Use this emphasis on prayer to, uh, to stay connected to other people in this community. And I want to invite you especially to use the Psalms to guide your prayers. 
And we've talked about this a few different formats here. We, we did a course seminar on praying the Bible. You see this modeled more or less every Sunday during the prayer time. Uh, we typically will read a passage of Scripture, just like Paul Davis did this morning, and then we'll pray from that passage. There's nothing magical about it. There's no trick to it. None of us have gone to school to learn how to do that. All we're doing is taking the words of the text and letting it inform the words of our prayer. It's just a way to sort of stay on task as you're praying. I've been doing that for years. I found it to be incredibly helpful for helping me pray for things I wouldn't otherwise think of. Uh, it helps you uh, pray in a way that's focused because your mind doesn't just wander into randomness as you're praying. And, and when it does, as it inevitably does, you've got a text to go back to. So you just go down to the next verse and start from there if your mind wanders. And it helps sort of spice up your prayers, to put it real uh, simply. You know, most of us pray for most of the same things all the time, and that's totally fine. Right? I mean, I'm going to pray for my wife and kids every day. No apologies, not feeling bad about that. But if I say that prayer in the exact same way every single day, eventually it's going to become kind of rote and boring, and I, my heart is not going to be engaged. My emotions could be unimpacted even as I'm praying for the most important people in my life, talking to the most important person in the universe, right? And so praying the scripture just helps us, it helps us kind of diversify the language of our prayer, not, not to impress the Lord, uh, not to impress ourselves or impress other people if they hear us, but to keep our hearts and minds engaged. So with this image of being like a tree planted by streams of water, I want to turn that into a challenge that we'd spend the summer praying through the Psalms for each other. And again, you can use this card to access our member list. If you've got a Bible, you can access the Psalms. So you've got all the tools you need uh, to accomplish that this summer. And I pray that it would accomplish the, the point that we were going through there in cultivating love for the law of the Lord. That over time you would see the, the practicality of the scripture as you're praying through it on a daily basis. So there are three characteristics of the righteous person in this psalm. We've said that they avoid the ways of the wicked. They love the law of the Lord. And then the third one is that they know that God knows. This is kind of interesting. There's this contrast between the blessed and the wicked going on in the verse here. When you look at verse 4 through 6, it begins to talk about how the wicked are not like the righteous, and it gives a, an extreme comparison. You know, the, the righteous are like a tree planted by streams of water, this picture of endurance and stability. They're safe and protected. They're going to make it. The wicked are like chaff blown away by the wind, the complete and opposite picture of stability. Right? That's the path of the unrighteous. Therefore, they will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And I want to focus on verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I think those two phrases are one of those instances where you've got parallel statements that essentially mean the same thing. There's the same basic concept. What the psalmist is saying is God knows. Okay? Now, whether you are among the wicked or among the righteous, that statement is either going to comfort you Switch hands. It's either going to comfort you or cause you great concern, right? God knows. That's either really good news or really bad news. Imagine if I'm at my house and I hear the sound of two little girls fighting over a toy. And I go into a room and the toy's in between my two little girls and they're tugging and pulling and they're fussing. 
and you've been there before, you know how this goes. Both have a story. Both had it first. Both took it from the other one somehow. You don't know how, how to unravel these things. But imagine I said to them, it might be just a smidge melodramatic, but it would be no less true. Imagine if I said to them, girls, the Lord knows what happened here. And he will make it right. Now, if they understood that, one of them would be really comforted. God knows she took that from me. He is going to make it right. (laughs) The other one will be terrified. God knows I took that. He's going to make it right. What's he going to do to me? Right? That's that's essentially what's happening in verse 6. The psalmist is saying, the Lord knows. To the righteous, this is such good news. Friends, he knows our way. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows what you need in this moment. It's hard right now. Is it hard right now? The Lord knows. You feel like you can't go on right now? The Lord knows. There are few things in Scripture more comforting than the knowledge of God of your individual situation if you're among those walking in His blessing. But if you've strayed from that path and you've consistently rejected your Maker and you're living in opposition to Him, What more frightful thing could I say to you than the Lord knows? You were made to meet your maker. He knows what you're doing. He sees it. And he will make it right. That's that's the sobriety of Psalm 6. That's the other side of it. There's great news for the righteous. Terrifying news for the wicked. The Lord knows. Now, to really understand this psalm and all the rest, I have to make one more point. I'll make it uh, briefly. We have to bear in mind as we read stuff like this in the psalms, none of us are righteous. None of us are the blessed man. the, The righteous walk not in the ways of the wicked. How many of us accomplished that to perfection this week? Right? The righteous love the law of the Lord. Sometimes I don't like it. Sometimes it's hard to hear. The the righteous know that God knows. Sometimes I drift around and I whine and I grumble and complain as if I think that God has no clue how bad my life is. So what am I to do when I read these promises? The Lord blesses the righteous, but none of us are truly righteous. And the Psalms know that. We've got things like Psalm 53, from which we get uh, Romans 3. Uh, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if they are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's pretty all-inclusive of every single one of us. So the Lord blesses the righteous, but all of us are wicked. So how are we to understand these psalms? Well, the Psalms are set up to make us cry out for a rescuer. They're set up to make us long for a righteous man who knows the path of the blessed, who himself is like a tree planted by streams of water, who is prosperous and fruit-bearing in all he does. We need a righteous man who will accept the judgment of the wicked on our behalf. That's what the Psalms leave us longing for. 
And it's what the Gospels tell us is precisely what Jesus came to do. So we have to read the Psalms canonically, like where they are in the Scriptures, before the Lord. They, They are cries for a Messiah to come. And realize that when we read about these blessings, these are realities that Christ has bought for us. We look back on these moments of crying for the Messiah to come, and we celebrate that He has come. And when He came... He was treated like the wicked so that you and I can be treated like the righteous. He was blown away like chaff so that we can be planted by streams of water. He was cursed so that we can know what it means to be blessed. When we read about the God who blesses, we don't want to think of this as if God is sitting in heaven sort of keeping a ledger and determining who he's going to bless based on who's being good that day. Okay, that, that, that would, that's a way that we could take this if we're not careful, if we don't catch these last couple very significant moments here. That the reality of the gospel is every one of us belongs in the latter half of that psalm in the destination and destiny of the wicked. But by grace, God has sent one to bear that judgment on our behalf He was cursed so that we might know what it is to be blessed through and only through Him. And so when we take communion, we celebrate His sacrifice on our behalf. We go to the table freely and we access that blessing, that reminder of the blessing of relationship with God because He has accessed that relationship for us and granted us free access to it through Himself. So we're going we're gonna to sing now and we're going to take communion. I invite you to the table. If you are a, a Christian, if you consider yourself one who is walking with the Lord, who, who loves Jesus, who, who is seeking to follow Him in your life, none of us are doing that perfectly. That's not what we're talking about. But that's the aim of your life. That's the cry of your heart, that you would walk in obedience to Him. Then we want to invite you to the table to enjoy this reminder that He is with us and He has purchased a way. Uh, for us to know the King. If you're not a Christian, if you want to identify yourself as a believer this morning, we're very glad you're with us. Uh, we're so thankful to have your participation throughout the service, but, but we would ask you not to participate in this because this really is a family meal. It, it really is for those uh, not who are righteous in and of themselves, but those who have found the emptiness of their own righteousness, those who have come face to face with their own wickedness, and have cried out to God for help. And this is our celebration of what he's done on our behalf. And we pray that there would be a day when you could celebrate with us. And so if you'd like to talk to any, anybody about what that would look like and, and, and how to go from being among the wicked to among the righteous, uh, the path is not to just start acting better, as we've said. The path is to cry out to the Lord to let him transform you from the inside out. And we'd be glad to talk to you about that. I'll be available in the back if anyone would like to speak further about it. But let me pray for us and we'll go to communion. God, thank you that you have made a way for the righteous and to, to become righteous. So you've made a way for the wicked to become righteous. You've made a way for the cursed to become blessed. You've made a way for those who are far from you to come to know you through your son. We pray that we would honor him as we take communion this morning. pray that we would honor him as we close our time in song and prayer. And I pray that you would compel us as a church this summer to pray for one another, 
and to grow in our love for your word. May we as individuals and we as families and we as a church be like trees planted by streams of water, prosperous as you define prosperity, fruitful as you define fruitful, and faithful, Lord, faithful to honor you in all that we do. We ask these things in Christ's name for his glory and his sake. Amen.